Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language Akodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." This is the word of the Lord. Be Maybe seated. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that, that we will be able to see it as just your word, not a word from some uh, person, not an opinion. And so, Lord, thank you that you are, you are walking us through the book of Acts, uh, even in uh, portions that we might be tempted to skip over, uh, that uh, get gruesome and uh, hard to discuss. Lord, we thank you that the whole council, the, the whole book uh, is your word and, and is, is good for us to, to read and to chew on. And so, Lord, may that be true this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you uh, are just joining us, we just jumped into the book of Acts. Uh, this is our first series ever as a church, and uh, we titled it, we are church. Um, we titled it that because we believe that uh, this is what the church is and what it should be, and the book of Acts is a perfect book for us to walk through as we kick off this thing called Mosaic. Um, uh, we believe the church should walk through the books of the Bible verse by verse, and so not just pull out passages randomly, but we did choose the book of Acts. We did choose this book because we do believe that it's a book about new churches in new areas doing things a little bit differently. 
Um, and it seems very appropriate for what we're trying to do. And so as we kick off this series and as we kick off our, uh, this thing called a church plant, I wanted to give you an introduction. Um, if you're new, well, uh, we haven't been around that long. <laughs> We've actually only had three Sunday mornings together, and so we're all new together. <laughs> uh, but that, that doesn't mean this thing isn't just happening all of a sudden. Um, that's not our whole story. As we look to the start and launch of the universal church, and this is something that we just affirmed in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church, um, we're saying, I want, I want us to share a little bit about what, how we came to be as a church plant. Um, Mosaic has actually been in the works for a little or close to about two years, I would say. It's been, uh, it's been a vision. It's been an idea. I was telling someone, I still feel like it's just an idea. Um, it's been something that's been, uh, been uh, thought about for about two years, and we are now in this process now of where we're at. But uh, our church at the time was Redeemer, and the, the Redeemer, the church, was trying to think through uh, ways to, we had, there was a, a growth of population. We were trying to think through ways to how to, where to place everyone. And so one idea was to build a bigger building. You may have been in a church that has done this before. And so as they were trying to do that, it became very expensive, as church buildings do. And so I threw out the idea, what if instead of growing taller, we grew wider? What if we uh, planted churches and, and went outward and, and, and to different parts of the city? Um, and so as we started looking at that, um, I was the whole time I was thinking... <laughs> Let's find someone to do that for us because there's no way I would do that because I had no, no desire to be a church planter. I thought I would rather eat a ghost pepper than, than plant a church because it's the easiest job of the world. But then I started reading books about planting churches, and I'll, I'll reference these if you go on the website. I'll make sure I send these out to you. But I started reading books about church planting and that when you do plant churches— Something wild happens <laughs> that you start seeing three times as many conversions <laughs> in church plants as, well, as opposed to existing churches. Maybe it's, be, it's for multiple reasons, uh, but, but we start that the, 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 the history of the church has shown this to be true that people are more likely to walk into a new church than they are to an existing church. They said, maybe I'll give this a try. We've already seen some of this uh, proven to be true already. And so th this was a beautiful thing that we're like, okay, that's beautiful. <laughs> uh, but not only evangelistically, also internally something happens when you plant churches. Also internally that every single person in the church actually becomes a lot more active. That uh, there's a lot more participation in the church uh, why? Because we have a lot to do, as we just talked about. <laughs> um, we need you. Um, it's it's a way to push us out of our consumeristic way of looking at church, of just going and, and observing and then leaving. Um, and so what we are starting to see is that, that new churches pushes against that tendency and, and makes us realize that church is not a spectator sport. It, it's, it's Pokemon Go. <laughs> Everyone can play. <laughs> and then you go. If you walk around downtown, there's people all over just looking at their phones, playing this game. Anyone can do it. And it's Odd to see it happening, but everyone's a part of this. And that's, this book is titled Acts, right? Why is it titled Acts? 
because the gospel moves you to act. That not just to sit and ponder, but to respond to it. That the church is created because of Jesus' acts, and then the church acts because of that. And so the purpose of Acts is that no one is able to hinder the victorious march of the gospel. It is on the move, and nothing stops it. And this is what we see in this book, that, that, that the church is a mission agency, not a rest stop. Let's say that again. The church is a mission agency, not a rest stop. And so that it is, as John Piper would say, it is a battleship, not a cruise ship. And so it's a way, a way for us to rethink how church is supposed to be and how it can be. And so the battle is real for souls as well as bodies. Another new thing that new churches does is that, it, that it's sometimes hard for older churches to do. This is not an, a polemic against existing churches. They have an amazing amount of resources to go and to, to, to push churches out. But something that's hard for older churches to do is because, as all of us are, we get set in our ways. We have a certain way of doing things that may become extra biblical, right? And so it's, it's hard for us to break out of these tendencies. But one thing that breaks our hearts at, at Mosaic is that we've seen in the history of the church is that there is a, a very clear divide in who goes to which church. And so what Martin Luther King Jr. said back in the 50s looks exactly true as it does today in 2019, that the most segregated hour is 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. How do we push against that? And that is our heart cry. How do we push against this? I mean, this, this, the churches are killing their credibility when we say we are a church for all people, but it's very clear we're only a church for some. And so what we, what we, this is Mosaic's heart to kick and scream against this trend. And so um, this, these two things, the, the, the missiology, what the church is going to do, and the ecclesiology, who and what the type of church it should be, is what has pushed us over our fears to get this thing rolling. And so we said yes, Kristen and I said yes. We didn't know what that meant. <laughs> Uh, we said yes. We fell in love with East Waco. Uh, we sold our home. Someone gifted us a land to build a house on. And then we went to church planning assessment. We got the green light. And then we enrolled our kids in the schools. We started meeting with people. Our, our house was complete. We started house church back in April. And here we are today. Wow. It has gone fast. But we haven't arrived. <laughs> That is the tendency and the temptation to see as we've arrived. <laughs> Kill that thought. <laughs> we've come to the starting line. <laughs> We're about to go is another way of seeing it. We have so much more to do, and the book of Acts is actually showing us that, 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 that there is so much more to do. That The book of Acts shows us that it's not the professionals at work that we see the gospel advancing. It's, it's the church itself, because in our passage here, we see the apostles, and besides Peter, James, and John, of all the apostles, even the one that's about to be elected into the group, we don't hear from them ever again. <laughs> and so it's not, it's not the professionals that we are, we are following here. We, the, the book of Acts is showing us that it's the whole church at work that actually sees the gospel just light fire and move outwards. And so the beauty of Acts, though, I think can be summarized in a verse from last week. Uh, I think we have it up here on the screen here. Verse 8. It's a really simple book. 
Last week, we had this verse 8 where it says, but you will receive power, or the word there is dynamite. (laughs) You will receive dynamite when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this is the foundation for the book of Acts. It summarizes the mission, and it summarizes the purpose and the outline of where we're going with this whole series. And so it's in Jerusalem in the first seven chapters. It goes to all Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 11. And the remainder of the book traces the gospel. It's reaching as far as Rome and as Africa and to the ends of the earth. And so these are Jesus' last words to his apostles. Feels like that's an important thing to think about. His last words to his apostles is, this is what will happen. You will receive power and you will go outwards. You will go from Jerusalem outwards. Then they're headed to, they go from Jerusalem and then people get experts on Jerusalem and then the Holy Spirit compels some people in a strange way to go out to Judea and then head to Samaria where they start bringing the gospel. These Jews start bringing the gospel to what they would call half-breeds in the Samaritans. And so we, then we start seeing another theme of the book of Acts is not just the church and its movement outwards, but it's also the inclusion of the Gentiles or the, or the nations into the gospel. And so this is actually where we get our, 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 our call and our push towards racial reconciliation, that God reconciles us vertically as well as horizontally. And so it's now the inclusion of the Gentiles. It's all over this book. And so then it goes to the ends of the earth. And when those words are written, that the gospel go to the ends of the, world, of the earth, you and I were in Jesus' mind. We were the ends of the earth. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> that the gospel will finally reach you, <laughs> will finally reach me. And so the, the church is never stagnant. It's never pacified. It's always moving and growing and always pushing outwards into Judea and to Samaria and the ends of the earth. And the people that will, co- will, will come into the church will come into this church and then we will send them outwards. We will always be a church that will celebrate pushing people outwards because that's what we see what happens here. We will be identifying new church plants and missionaries and leaders to go because that's the continuing church. And let me let you in on a little secret. Nothing has changed. The same Holy Spirit (laughs) given to the disciples is the same Holy Spirit that we have. That same Holy Spirit's been given to you and me. And so the church is described in the book here is, is the same church that we get to be a part of. And did you all know that we are a part of another organization called Acts 29? How many chapters are in the book of Acts 28, heretics. (laughs) Why do we say Acts, why do we be a part of Acts 29? Because we see ourselves as the continuing church. As the church has been moving outwards, we are the the next chapter of the church being moving to move outward. And so we are that continuation. We are not cul-de-sacs of grace. We are highways of grace, right? We're going far and fast to reach the people of Christ. Do you believe that? That's what we are about. And so Jesus then leaves his plan of salvation with the church. (laughs) Ooh, don't do it. (laughs) Don't leave it with Peter. (laughs) Don't leave it with them. But he leaves it with the church. And now the disciples are, are no longer followers, but now they are the ones in charge. He leaves it with Peter. He appoints Peter to be in charge have you ever have that happen to you where you were, once, you were once the second in command, but now 
you got to start making decisions. I was a follower, now I'm the leader. <laughs> oh, Lord, what are we going to do here? <laughs> I've been in the support role, but now I've got to figure out what's my North Star? What direction are we going in? And this is what happens to Peter. He takes the lead role now. He is not, he's not uh, the follower, but he's the leader. He's the one that's, that's saying, let's start appointing someone to replace Judas. The baton has been handed to him. And even though his denial of Jesus might have irrevocably uh, discredited him, him in his colleagues' eyes, the risen Lord's personal appearance to him recommissions him and rehabilitates him and ensures him this position that's never to be forfeited ever again. And verse 12 says, They returned to Jerusalem to wait on the Lord. So they go back to Jerusalem because the Lord Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem. So they're, they're being obedient. They're listening to what he's trying to tell them to do. And they're, and they're waiting for the Spirit to come. Then in verse 13, it says that they're up in the upper room. Now this upper room, many scholars are starting to say this could have been, it may have been, it probably would have been, we don't know for sure, the same room where Jesus has his last supper. And so they're in the same room waiting for the Spirit to come. And who's there? It's the apostles. It's Mary and Jesus' brothers. And if you last remember, they had all doubted who Jesus was. But now they're believers. They had all doubted that he was actually the Lord. But now they're believers. And now they're waiting on Jesus to show up. They're praying and devoted to prayer. And then in verse 14, if you notice that Luke notes who's there and that there are these women there. Luke loves to note that the women were there. <laughs> he is purposely writing the essential element of the women right here in the church. Because they're in a society where, where women's testimony wasn't even credible in court. It would, be, it would be discarded, and yet he puts it in here. He was, he's trying to say how essential the women are to this testimony, how essential they are to the kingdom of God, that they are essential because they're also the ones who were the first to tell of Jesus' resurrection. How vital they are in here. And he writes it not because he wants to uh, uh, get some uh, approval because he's trying to tell a lie to the, to the church that there's this fake resurrection. No, he's, he's writing it here because it's fact that the women were there and that they were there in the room and praying with it. And so I think it's essential for us to see the, the, the vitality and in, in, in how crucial it is for us to see that the women were involved in here. And Luke wants us to see that. But then he writes another thing that you wouldn't think he would include, and he spends a whole section on it, and it's probably the most embarrassing story of the Christian faith. And he writes it in gruesome detail. And he's not, even as uh, Jaja read it, you probably cringed a little bit. And it's the fallout from Judas's sin. Peter stands up in front of the church of a, about 120 people and recounts the story of Judas I mean, the story of Judas just brings me to tears when we think about it. I mean, so you have, you have this man who, who was with the 12 at the beginning. He was with Jesus. He was, he, was, he, was doing, he was casting out demons. He was doing miracles in his name. He was actually, and Peter makes sure to be clear, that he's actually part of God's plan. But still on a personal level, I just feel for Judas. I mean, his role in the team was on the finance team. He was the treasurer. You guys remember in John 12, it says, 
He's referring to Judas, and it says, He was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John just writes that so nonchalant. Uh, That was Judas. (laughs) He just stole from the offering plate. But isn't it odd that Jesus would put a thief in charge of the money bags? That he would know, he would appoint him to do this? But what I think this shows us is that Judas's betrayal, wasn't this just one-time slip? That he, 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 he fell into this sin. Now, he had been sinning against the group for a while now. And it was this habitual sin that he, he struggled or maybe just dabbled in. And so greed was this all-consuming thing for Judas. And greed, I think when you break it down, is, is really about control and comfort. And so you can see he was, he was probably a warrior, right? He was worried about what would happen, and so he wanted to control every situation, ensure his own financial stability, and so he pocketed some money. And when things were getting out of hand, Jesus and the high priests uh, start coming after, after Jesus. He sells out the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver, But this fulfills the role of what Scripture said would happen. But here's the part that just breaks my heart. It's not included in our passage here. But in Matthew 27, it says, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. I hope we don't skip over that. He returns the money. I mean, he feels the remorse. What have I done? (laughs) This isn't right. I've backstabbed the one that I love. And he returns the money. The man who's in love with money returns the money. And then verse 4 says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And then here's the part that's just heartbreaking. And then they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Uh, I don't know if you've dealt with someone who may have happened. You've dealt with suicide, but it is a painful and ugly and just a hard thing because of the rippling effects of what it does to the community. Because you read this and you, you just you can see the grief that he has. You see the shame and the remorse and you want to be like, you're so close. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And their answer is, what is that to us? Figure it out yourself. And he commits suicide. I just hate that. It doesn't have to be this way. But the fallout of his sin is just nuclear. Obviously, the most important person it affects is Jesus himself, but then it affects all the people around him, that they all then scatter. And we see that, as we said this morning, that, that sin is personal and it's communal and it's cosmic, that our sin affects the people around us. I don't put this in my notes, but I just want to make sure I'm very clear. I don't, do not see... Suicide as the last and ultimate sin. I don't see it as irredeemable. I want to make sure I'm very clear on that. 
I see as part of what's going on in his mind. But we're now dealing with the fallout here. And in verse 18, it tells us in more detail in, in Acts what happens that Judas does. It, it doesn't say that he hangs himself, but it just says that his body fell. And so the, the thought is that after he hung himself, his body, after decomposing, fell, and the insides went out. And this gruesome detail is to, to show, and they call it even the, the field of blood, the, the ugly nature of his betrayal of Jesus. <clears throat> But that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is to show that the march of the gospel, that that victorious march of the kingdom is not halted even by Judas' sin. That, that nothing can stop the, the victorious march of the gospel. And that also that Jesus was not even mistaken in picking Judas. It was a fulfillment of scripture. And so God is still sovereign. God is still king even in the midst of fallout. God is still king even in the midst of brokenness. He did not, he's not surprised by it. It was foretold of what was going to happen. And so he says, okay, let's... let's Let's replace Judas, because I still got you guys. Let's replace him, not with anyone, but with an apostle. And we get what the qualification of an apostle is in verses 21 through 22. And one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time, someone who was with them, uh, verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from among us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so an a apostle must have been a witness, must have seen the resurrection themselves and been, and been called to then go witness it likewise. And so the qualifications of the apostle, see the resurrection of Jesus, be received the commission to witness, and then they said, well, who should we do? Uh, let's, let's, let's throw some dice, let's cast some lots, and it fell on Matthias. This is a prescriptive passage for us to find out our, who our next small group leader is. <laughs> We're going to roll some dice and, oh, Jake and Catherine, thank you all. <laughs> No, this is actually the very last time in Scripture that we see the, the casting of lots. Um, and so the, the, the thought from the commentators is that because the very next passage, next week's passage, is when the Holy Spirit starts being poured out among everyone, that they, they are casting lots to put it in God's hands to see who, who, what, who do you want, Lord? Which, which is the person you want to call to your team? And now that we have the Holy Spirit, there is a, the thought that then we go to the Spirit and we ask, Lord, and we have that access that can be discussed at another time. That can get very, so how do you hear the Lord's Spirit? That's a different sermon. Okay. Just putting that out there. We'll discuss it later. All right. But as I said earlier, the verse 8 is the theme of the book. You will be my witnesses. And that's what he's asking them to do, to be witnesses. And that the church is to be a witness of what he's done. The, the word witness is actually used 13 of the 35 times uh, in, in the book of Acts. So the 35 times in the New Testament, 13 of them are used in the book of Acts. And so that this book is all about witnessing. When, when people see you, they see the church, that you will be my witnesses, and therefore they will see Christ. The word witness is the same word for martyr. Uh, so you will, be my, you will sacrifice for this. A witness is someone who helps, helps establish facts. And so when you're coming into the courtroom, you are a witness to what has happened. And then the, the other lawyer is going to try to discredit you. And so they're going to bring up all the reasons why you don't have any, any reason to, have it, to be believable. 
And so all you are doing is not bringing a subjective truth of, oh, I think this is what the Lord's done. All a witness does is say, this is what the Lord has done. And that is what Luke is after, is trying to figure out what is the testimony that, that is true. And so all a witness does is speak up, speaks up. A witness proclaims, and that is the call to the disciples. And that's the call to the early church, and that's the call to the Acts 29 church that is right here, is for us to testify. It is a call for us to be witnesses. We are to witness what God has done for us. We are to witness what he is doing in our midst. And when the church is silent, that's when we see the gospel slow. It's not because of what Judas has done. It's when the church gives up its duty to witness. Martin Luther King Jr. famously spoke a lot on the silence of the church. He said, the silence of good people is far more dangerous than the brutality of bad people. It's not the violence of the few that scares me, it's the silence of the many. History will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. So injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and we are caught in this inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny, and so whatever affects one directly is going to affect all indirectly. And he who passively accepts evil as much as it is as much involved in it as he who also per perpetrates it. Simply, he's saying this silence is complicity. And so, silence was all around Jesus' death. It wasn't just Judas that killed Jesus. We love to lay the blame solely on Judas' feet. But look at all the opportunities his followers had to speak up, and they said nothing. When, when others could have stood up and testified to the truth of who he was and the good that Jesus has done, what did we hear? Nothing. When Peter was questioned, aren't you the man that, that, that walks with him? No, I don't know the man. He does it three times. I don't know him. The crowds, when, when Pilate is asking them, what should we do with them? The crowds who were following him everywhere, where he couldn't even walk in between, the ones that he's healing and going into the homes, what did they say? Nothing. We saw you walk on water, Jesus. We saw you feed 5,000. And not one of those apostles stood up for Jesus. And when Jesus most needed it. When, when Jesus most needed someone, anyone to stand up for him. And at, at his lowest point when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gets silence from his father. But this is the great and beautiful plan of salvation. His silence right here is for our good right now. That God was silent then was actually good for us right now. 
Because though he was silent in this moment, he is going to never, ever be silent for you and me. God isn't silent anymore, though. There is singing in heaven over you when you come to the faith. There is joy and there are shouts when one returns to the Lord. And then the Lord vindicates his son and is no longer silent. Because he says now, every knee shall bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so no one will be silent. And that you will get the glory, the glory, and the glory that is due your name. And so God calls us to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth to not be silent anymore. Will we be silent? We can't be silent about what God has done for us. So today, God is saying, be my witnesses, testify, be a witness to what God has done for you because your story, your story is powerful. And you might think, well, I don't, I don't have these great words to, to persuade people. All you need to do is be one beggar, tell another beggar where to find bread. I don't know, but they got bread over there. <laughs> I don't know, but they got something good over there. That's where I get it. <laughs> that is all we have to do. And say, the Lord is so wonderful and beautiful that he saved even me. Go to him. He'll save you too. <laughs> and he'll do mighty things through you. And so I ask you the question, is the good news good enough? Because we have some wonderful news. We have life events that we like to share. We have, we have the births of children that we like to share. We have job offers. And, and we should share those and celebrate those. But is the good news good enough for us to share? I think that's, that, that's a step one is for us to actually think about that. Because we can't go fake it out there and be like, oh, yeah, you should definitely hear about Jesus. I don't really believe it myself. <laughs> Ask yourself, is it good for me? That's how we know. That's how people know of the love of Christ. That's how we've heard about it today. Because people then, in the oral tradition, shared this good news and told it to Luke, who wrote it down for us to hear about it today. And so because of their witness, we get to hear about it. And so if you've never heard the good news before, I want you to listen up. Here's my contention. Why is it so good because I'm just like Judas. I, am, I, I feel it in my bones. When I was in college, we, me, I was in a band, and we wrote a song called Judas and Me. Because we, just, we identify with someone who is so prone to wander and so, and so tempted to sin. Lord, I feel it. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But the problem with Judas isn't that he didn't feel remorse over his sin, because clearly he did. The problem was he didn't go to his Savior for his sin. And that leads us to a very dark place when we just bring our sin to, to man instead of to, to the Son of Man. When we bring our sin to just one, one another and we have the response of the, the high priest, what's that to us? Deal with it yourself. We get man's response. But if, if he would have come to Jesus and said, I've sinned, I've betrayed innocent blood, Jesus wouldn't have let him get a word out. <laughs> Jesus would have come running for him and wrapped him up in a beautiful bear hug. This is the picture of the prodigal son here, the son who took the father's money and came running after him. The father would have lavished his love with him 
don't worry, your sins are forgiven. But he didn't go to him. And you might say, could, could Judas really be forgiven? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if, if, if I can be forgiven, if Peter, if James, if John, if Philip and Andrew and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James and Simon and Judas can all be forgiven, of course Judas can be forgiven. They are all equally in need of a Savior. But when we come to, G- to these men, we, don't, we, we, we get, deal with it yourself. But when we come to Jesus, he doesn't stay silent. The scriptures tell us that he is pleading our case with the Father. And he's saying, they are not guilty. And not only not guilty, they are, they are adopted into my family, are given the full access and the rights of the kingdom. They are queens and kings in my kingdom. And so he shouts not guilty and praise God that Jesus isn't silent for us. Will you witness to this? Will you speak up? Because there's no plan B. God entrusted the church, his, his, his plan of salvation with the church. He says, the church is my missions agency. And so will we be the church? Will we share this good news and what, that God has given us? Maybe he's pushing you outwards. Maybe he's pushing you to, out of Jerusalem into Judea into Samaria. One very simple way we can celebrate and we can witness this morning is something we get to partake of here in a second, and that's the Lord's table. If you, if you remember, as we, as, we, as we take and partake of this table, we do say that you proclaim the Lord's death, his resurrection, until he comes again. And so we are proclaiming this. We are, we are saying, yes, the ascent of Jesus has gone, but somehow, mysteriously, he is still with us. That we, we, he is spiritually present with us in the Lord's Supper. That we were saying, yes, he is here. And so we are proclaiming that. We are witnessing that. Just by being here at church, <laughs> we are witnessing that. So thank you for witnessing to me this morning. Let's pray.